In this episode of 9-2-I Talks, Zadie Smith, beloved author of White Teeth, On Beauty, N.W., and Swing Time, reads from her first book of short fiction, Grand Union, and sits for a conversation with fellow novelist Jennifer Egan. The conversation was recorded on December 5th, 2019, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Like many readers, I learned of Zadie Smith first as a phenomenon, the wonderkind who'd dazzled Britain with her first novel at age 24 before I'd ever actually read her fiction. And as a then 37-year-old struggling in semi-obscurity to finish my second novel, I will confess that I opened White Teeth with a certain eagerness to find it wanting. It took Smith all of 13 pages to convert me, and I remember so precisely the moment when I crossed over into being her fan that I was able to locate it within seconds of pulling my old hardcover edition from the bookshelf a few days ago, nearly 20 years after reading it the first time. The narrator is describing the job of one of the protagonists in the novel Archibald Jones at a printing firm. Quote, Designing the way all kinds of things should be folded. Envelopes, direct mail, brochures, leaflets. Not much of an achievement, maybe, but you'll find things need folds. They need to overlap. Otherwise, life would be like a broadsheet, flapping in the wind and down the street so you lose the important sections." End quote. So that's great, obviously, but what really got me is what follows. After a couple more sentences, there's a section break, and the new section begins, what else? Well, Archie hadn't always folded paper. That what else was my portal into the force field of Zadie Smith's work and intellect, which I've been experiencing with amazement and delight ever since. That what else signaled a narrator, sorry, sig signaled a narrator whose storytelling methods included open speculation about how to tell the story. Smith's curiosity about storytelling as a practice, what it is and how it works, what it has been and can be, courses through all of her remarkable work, which includes not just five novels, but two collections of prize-winning essays that gather up a kaleidoscopic array of lectures and criticism of books, film, music, and art. You can't get very far into a conversation about the state of English language fiction without someone invoking and likely, likely even quoting Zadie Smith. That's how essential she has become as a public intellectual. Here's the opening of one of my favorite stories in her brand new collection, Grand Union, which we're here to celebrate tonight. The story is called Kelso Deconstructed. Quote, the people are Kelso and Olivia, a couple. The setting, a shabby rented room in the Bevington Road in Portobello. It was Kelso's room until five weeks ago when Olivia moved in. Kelso is from Antigua originally. He's a carpenter. Olivia is a trainee nurse from Jamaica. They are engaged to be married, although they will never marry. 
By the time the next sentence arrives, it will be Saturday, 16 May, 1959, the last day of Kelso's life. One thing about the last day of our lives is we almost never know that it is the last day. From here stems dramatic irony, and no more did Kelso know it." End quote. Here is precisely the skill I fell in love with almost 20 years ago, elevated now to a kind of literary trinity, telling a story, calling attention to the way storytelling works, and actually heightening the story's emotional power by exposing its mechanics. Virtually impossible to do, but Zadie Smith does it again and again in these new stories. Grand Union glimmers and glitters with her curiosity about the variety of human experience and the variety of ways to render that experience with language into an instrument of empathy, connection, and truth. As Smith herself wrote in an essay published just a few weeks ago, quote, belief in a novel is, for me, a byproduct of a certain kind of sentence. I believe in a sentence of balance, care, rigor, and integrity. The sort of sentence that makes me feel against all empirical evidence to the contrary, that what I am reading is, fictionally speaking, true." End quote. Smith is describing fiction's deep alchemy, the use of a sequence of words to transport the reader inside the consciousness of another human being, an experience none of us will ever have in our real lives. Please welcome to the stage one of the finest alchemists of the English language, Zadie Smith. Hi. Thank you. Um, I'd like to thank Jenny, who is, of course, as you know, an alchemist herself. Um, and I, I want to say quickly before I read, I, I wasn't able to see those students earlier. I was students, I was with my kids. I'm sorry, but um, like they say in school, come and see me after. I'll be at the, I'll be at the table. Um, this story is called For the King. Arriving in Paris from Strasbourg, I rushed from Guerre de l'Est to meet my friend, V, who had agreed to take me for a late dinner. It would be his plan and his treat. All I had to do was meet him on Rue Montalembert at 9.15 outside my hotel. I'd been working, and reaching my hotel with five minutes to spare took the opportunity to rush upstairs to change, with that strange urgency sometimes brought to dressing for friends especially if, like V, they are themselves beautiful and well-dressed. I took off the high-waisted jeans and severe shirt buttoned to the neck, replacing them with a long silk dress, black but dotted with yellow flowers, a crisp denim jacket, big white trainers, some very red lipstick. I ran back downstairs. I had informed my friend in an email that I was exhausted with talking, that I had talked myself to death, and he should do all the talking on all subjects, no matter how small. I wanted to hear everything, even the dullest minutinae of his life. 
The moment we saw each other, however, we fell into a mutual unburdening, speaking over each other in a series of overlapping waves as he walked through the city. His work and mine, his family and my own, the situation in Europe versus the situation in America, gossip about mutual acquaintances and any other interesting developments that had occurred since we'd last seen each other a year earlier in London. I'd been surprised to discover that he was in Paris at all, and now he explained he'd won a bursary, which had installed him as an artist in residence at the university, so that he was presently surrounded on all sides by academics. He found them curious people, never able to say a word without qualifying it from 15 different angles. <laughs> to listen to them, he said, is to be confronted with a mass of verbal footnotes. And by contrast, whenever I open my mouth to speak, unthinkingly, as you know I always do, saying whatever comes into my head, everybody looks utterly horrified. Or else they tell me I'm brave. But it's awful to be told you're brave when you had no idea that you were taking a risk. <laughs> the day had been unseasonably hot, 28 degrees in October. And by the time we got to the restaurant, it was still warm enough to eat outside. We were led to our seats by a waiter of incredible beauty, who immediately became a topic of conversation. He was black, very young, slender yet muscular, and moved like a dancer between the tables, openly flirting with many of the male diners, including my friend. And how is your boyfriend? I asked V, pointedly. Your boyfriend of 20 years standing, who lives by the sea. How is he? Oh, he is well, replied my friend, with a look of mock formality upon his face. He continues to be very well. Although we are in an interesting new phase of our relationship, when I begin to notice that it's better if I tell him only about the amusing encounters, where the sex went wrong or something ludicrous happened. Whereas if I have an actual connection with someone, it's better if I keep that to myself, because if I tell him, he goes quiet, he feels hurt in some way. Though, of course, for me, it is exactly the real connections that are most worth talking about, and therefore, those are the ones I feel most guilty about keeping from him, because by omitting them, I omit a part of my real lived experience. It's a conundrum. Listening to V made me smile. When he asked me why, I said, I was thinking about all the middle-aged people in the world presently torturing themselves as they observed, mainly via the lifestyle articles in their Sunday newspapers, the polyamory of the young, which led them to wonder whether after 20 years of marriage, it was not too late to introduce the idea of opening up their own relationships in some way. V laughed. In my culture, he said, making the word culture sound satirical, that conversation is radically sped up. Two men get together and are absolutely blissful. The happiness goes on and on. But then they check the calendar and lo and behold, three months have gone by and it's time to consider an open relationship. <laughs> the beautiful waiter returned to ask what we wanted to drink. And a moment later, in the most charming way possible, expressed the usual French disbelief in the existence of a vodka martini. V picked up a bottle of white wine instead and sat back in his chair as the waiter left, admiring him as he returned to the kitchen. I told V that I used to think people were wildly jealous of what they perceived as the sexual freedom of men like him. But now I felt that most people did not really want sexual freedom after all, not at least if it meant having to grant the same freedom to those whom they wanted for themselves. No, what we wanted at least as much as sex was the opportunity to recreate, replay, and improve upon our old family dramas in a new house with new mothers and fathers, except this time around your parent would be someone you could also have sex with, as Freud pointed out. <laughs> One of Freud's greatest insights, in fact, was that there's nothing more perverse than bourgeois married life. 
V nodded vigorously as he tore at a piece of bread. Amen to that. These days, I continued, when I look at the figure of the aging Lothario, for example, jumping from girl to girl, what I really see is a man desperately looking to be mothered. I wonder what happens to that instinct in men like you. V sighed. It's possible, he said, that the very definition of the gay man is he who has had enough mothering to last a lifetime. <laughs> Over our main course, we discussed Parisian sex clubs and orgies. A good friend of V's attended them with some regularity and had given him a full report, which he now passed on to me. I was very interested in the little lockers where you put your clothes and also the fact that so many people kept their socks on. <laughs> what interested me most, however, was the idea of treating other people like objects. But before I could get very far down this line of inquiry, my friend interrupted me. I didn't say objects, he said. I was talking of body parts, of orifices and members, which is very different. Those organs all have the same capacity for pleasure and are equally ignorant of who owns them. It's you who moralize, bringing up the difference between objects and persons. And anyway, what matters at an orgy is not a different attitude to people, but a different relationship to time. You, V pointed a finger at my chest, are altogether too conscious of time. It distorts your view of many things. Even your own family drama, I mean, of course, the age gap between your parents, has always been understood by you as a fundamental inequality between them. But I'm in a relationship with a similar gap and rarely think about it. You choose to think it's so important because time is your preoccupation. For example, I can remember once telling you about a busy day of sexual encounters I'd had around the city, and you said you couldn't really understand daytime sex on the grounds that it wasted time. <laughs> time that could be more profitably spent working. V threw his hands up in despair. It was my turn to laugh and also to protest. In the spirit of these things, I'd been at least half joking. Yes, persisted V, but at the core of it, there was a truth. I think of sex, any act of sex, as something that ignores and in fact obliterates time, so that sexual pleasure never is and never could be a waste of time because it negates time entirely. After we had cleaned our plates, in my case to the point you would never know it had ever had food on it, the waiter returned and ignored our mutually feigned ambivalence towards dessert. We ordered a platter of mixed cheese and a giant creme brulee. I tried to defend myself by pointing out that a woman's life so often feels dictated by time, biological time, historical time, personal time. I thought of my friend Sarah, who once wrote that a mother is a sort of timepiece for a child, because the time of a child's life is measured against the time of the mother. A mother is the backdrop against which a child's life is played out. It might be understandable if such a time-weighted being found it hard to allow pleasure to entirely obliterate time. V pretended to seriously consider this counter-argument, but then as soon as I'd stopped speaking, presented a substantial list of women artists, past and present, who delighted in daytime sex, although how he knew this about them, he didn't explain. <laughs> Maybe you're simply too English, suggested V, and I conceded the point. By the time V paid the bill, it was past midnight, but as we'd started late, we felt we hadn't quite had enough of each other, so proceeded to Café de Flore, ordered more wine, and considered all the exercise we would have to do the next morning to counter the effects of the wine, cheese, and sugar on our middle-aged physiques. I asked him how he felt about aging. V frowned and asked, why was I worrying about the subject? I looked exactly the same. But that's what friends always say, I replied. And they're not lying, but it's a delusion of familiarity. I don't feel that you've aged or that any of my friends have aged, but that can't possibly be the case. 
Yes, said V, but you really haven't, or not that much, so it's offensive and boring, not to mention in bad taste, to hear you complain about something that barely affects you. <laughs> I reached out to pinch V's waistband and pointed out the, what, 29 inches it had always been. 28, he cried, it's 28. Please get it right and also make a note to remember. I promised to do so. With his iPhone, V took a selfie of the two of us, which we eagerly bent over the screen to study, only to discover that neither of us looked anywhere near as young as we'd imagined. <laughs> but if we were white, said V, a little glumly, putting his phone back in his pocket, it would already be a lost cause, so at least we have that to be thankful for. <laughs> Still, one day I know that I will look in the mirror and see one of those very, very old men you see selling fish by the river in rural Chinese villages, he said, and you will look and find whatever the Jamaican equivalent of that is, it will happen very abruptly. We'll have been 37 for 20 years, and then all of a sudden we'll both be 105. <laughs> By this point, we were quite drunk. Our conversation staggered around haphazardly, like an old fool stumbling down the road, paying no attention to the cracks in the pavement. We wondered about young people overhearing us. We wondered what young people overhearing us might make of our ancient conceptual divisions, straight, gay, by men, women, how ridiculous we must sound to them. I put it to V that in revolutions, young people are generally always right and old people almost always wrong. But V rolled his eyes and said, well, if that were true, we'd all still be living in spiritual cults in the San Fernando Valley. <laughs> I was wrong at 20, he murmured, and I'm still wrong now. Being wrong is a lifelong occupation. We fell quiet and watched the street traffic. Since my last visit to Paris, a new kind of electric scooter had invaded the city like the Charles version, but twice the size and made of metal. People left them abandoned wherever and whenever they felt like, then took them up again using an app on their phones, translating this new technology into ancient Parisian habits, so that as we sat in Café de Flore, we could watch several pairs of picturesque lovers go by, two bodies on a single scooter, helmetless, holding each other, as they had previously done on Vespers and on bikes, in two CVs and horse-drawn carriages, or on the back of a farmer's trailer, snug upon bales of hay. It was very late. We launched into a cruel assessment of previously pretty young men we'd once known, and then back again to age in general, to May and December romances, and whether either of us still found people in their early 20s attractive. V felt that absolutely yes, he did, although it was sometimes very hard to listen to their conversations. While I had to admit that my apparently typically feminine preoccupation with time made the young more or less invisible to me now. They were young enough to be my children and I could see them in no other light. Something about this fact depressed me. With age and despite myself, even my desires have become civilized and appropriate. To cheer me, V described an older French artist of his acquaintance. She was 80 years old, traveled all over the world to museums showing her work, and always took with her a little case on wheels filled with lingerie. She prided herself on regular one-night stands with men in the art world, many of whom were in their 20s. I told V that was the Frenchest thing I had ever heard. <laughs> he agreed, and we raised a glass to this octogenarian adventuress. As we counted out our euros, we discussed another old artist, a man this time, who had recently lost his gallery because of a series of exploitative sexual relationships with younger men. What interested me in V's account of the matter was that everyone had known that the man in question was a sentimental and submissive bottom, 
who had a habit of becoming sloppily emotionally attached to his young lovers or victims, depending on your point of view, sending them flowers, crying down the phone, etc. That the perpetrator happened in this case always to be the penetrated, never the penetrator, was an aspect of the case that played no part whatsoever in the newspaper accounts, for whom the detail was of no interest, either because it made no difference whatsoever to his guilt or innocence, or perhaps because it was structurally invisible. But so much of life is structurally invisible, I noted, and has no way of fitting into the external accounts of our lives. Our lives are so different on the inside. We can never express their full particularity and strangeness in public, their inner chaos and complexity. There are always so many things it proves impossible to say. Yes, said V, but at the same time, you can't concede everything to the public account, to what people see or think they understand. In a completely different arena, for example, here in Paris, I am Chinese. The public part of me, that is my face, speaks for me before I can. And so, in the public accounting, Chinese is what I am. I cannot walk the streets with a sandwich board explaining my birth, my nationhood, my culture, my history, the history of my country, and so on. That would be exhausting, impractical. But neither do I concede to their external definition. You have to be careful how much of yourself you render to Caesar. Of course, I know what I am, and given the time and space, I can and will express the facts fully. Although, in truth, I don't bother very often. It may be a question of sensibility. I am always very amused, for example, by the sort of person who gets infuriated if you mispronounce their name. Everywhere I go in France, people ask me if it's a long A in my name or a short one. They ask very anxiously, as if they know many people for whom this kind of thing matters enormously, and they don't want to make the same mistake with me. I suppose, continued V, living peacefully in a society means understanding that the things others care about might mean nothing to you, and vice versa. Do you know what I mean? In lieu of an answer, I told him a story about a party I once attended, at which a man called me by another woman's name all night, mistaking me for her, maybe because she did the same sort of work as me. I didn't correct him, though we'd met many times before. I tried to find it in myself to be insulted, to feel as others feel, to care as they would care, but instead I felt a strange lightness, like I'd given myself the slip for the evening. V listened in silence and then took his linen jacket which he'd not needed all night, off the back of his chair. I think that's why I keep changing cities, he said, to keep on giving myself the slip. On the walk back to my hotel, I wanted to tell one more story about something that had happened on my train journey earlier that evening en route to Paris. But there was no easy way to introduce it, as it didn't in any obvious way connect with anything else we discussed, seeming to come from another reality. Yet I couldn't shake the sense that it was significant, as we retraced our steps to the city, gossiping and joking, in the back of my mind, I kept seeking some way unobtrusively to turn to my story without seeming like an egomaniac who did nothing but tell stories about herself. But before I could find a solution, we arrived at the door of my hotel. We said our goodbyes, hugging each other tightly, and I ran up three flights of stairs, drunk and happy, grateful to have such a friend to whom one can say anything without fear. But as I had this thought, I remembered I hadn't told him everything. I had not told him about the man with Tourette's on the train from Strasbourg. He had been around my age, though his hair was sparse and gray, and he wore a light brown mac over trousers and shoes of the same shade, 
as if, in an attempt, as if an attempt had been made to shroud him in camouflage. Pour Leroy, the man said, every 20 seconds or so, for the king. Sometimes he repeated it at much briefer intervals, hardly pausing between repetitions of the phrase. He could not help but say it. The only choice before him was modulation. He could be very loud or not so loud. The woman next to him in her 60s, whom I presume to be his mother, alternated between enjoining him to speak less loudly and answering each repetition gently, without any sign of irritation. Oui, 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 mon amour, Boileroy. For a moment, my eyes met with hers. She and her charge were sitting right behind me. I had no doubt, looking at her, that she'd been listening to these three words for many years, maybe decades. Perhaps mixed with other words at some earlier point, but perhaps not. The look she gave me I find hard to describe. It expressed no pain, shame, or anxiety. It made no application for forbearance, pity, or acceptance. It was neither defiant nor angry. It was not even especially tired. The face was completely neutral. This is it, her face said. This is my life. The carriage was full. Realizing that the man would not stop, could not stop, each passenger, within a few minutes of settling in their seats, reached for their earbuds and thus entered a private world. I did the same. What might have been a torturous trip 20 years ago was now no trouble to anyone. There was a palpable sense of collective gratitude to technology. This evening, it would allow us to be our best selves. We would not look over our shoulders, sigh, or privately pray for this benighted family to get off the train. We would smile and take our seats with a sympathetic look, signifying that we had no objection to sharing our space with the mentally afflicted. Where others surely listen to music or podcasts or movies or audiobooks, I chose brown noise, a warm static, turned up high, which allowed me to read a novel in peace, entirely uninterrupted. The time passed quickly. Before I knew it, I had arrived in Paris, eager to meet my friend and taking off my earphones, was surprised to re-enter reality I'd forgotten about, one that had persisted while I visited another. In this reality, time could not be sidestepped, avoided, or obliterated. It could only be endured. For the man still had no choice but to say, Polaroi, to repeat it every few moments, sometimes screaming it, sometimes not, while the woman at his side, who could so easily have stayed silent, offered each and every time her quiet, earnest response. Yes, yes. Yes, my love. For the king. Treating the statement not as something involuntary, essentially empty like the yawp of an animal, but as a human utterance, which still carried some form of meaning, however small. Thank you. Thank you so much. I love that story. Thank you.
And actually, I wanted to ask you, and this sort of leads directly to it, you write beautifully about friendship and often about friendship, both NW and Swing Time, one of my favorites of your books. Thank you. Really delve into friendship over time and sort of how those relationships evolve. And in the story you just read, you're reading about two people who have known each other a long time who are having a kind of, a, the sort of conversation that you can only have with someone you've known a long time. Right. So talk a little bit about how why you're drawn to friendship as a fiction writer and sort of what it allows you to do, why, why it's a subject you return to. Um, I mean, when I was a young writer, like I remember, I mean, it remains the case I don't seem to have any interest in um, romantic relationships or storylines. I think things that are chosen, freely chosen, don't, don't interest me that much. That's the best way to put it. And family interests me most because you don't choose it, you're stuck in this series of relations and you have to mediate and deal with it. And friendship is often a little like that. At some point you made the choice, but usually it's, it's a long time in the past. And there are these kind of fixed contingencies. And also, it, when it's good, it's, it's, it's as close, I think, to a selfless relationship. You don't, you don't want anything in particular. You don't want sex, you don't want money, usually, hopefully. Um, it, when it's good, uh, it, it feels to me like an ideal form of human relation. But I also think as I've got older, you know, when you're 18, you think you have 4,000 friends. And then uh, you may, some of you may still be under that delusion, these kids in the <laughs> audience. Um, but uh, in, in middle age, certainly, my regard for friendship is very high, and I see how few I, I really have, you know. What, what a delicate thing it is and how much care it takes and how much um, narrativizing. You know, you have to tell a story about your friendship. Keep on telling it, keep on animating it to make it feel worthwhile for both of you. Do you find that your friendships are mostly with writers or people that even go back further than that time in your life when you began publishing? My oldest friend, because I grew up in a very tight neighborhood, most of the people I know I've known since I was two or three, you know, they're really old friends. You go through all the same schools together. Um, so there's that group of friends. But then, yes, most of my other friends are writers. I like writers. I, it's a shameful thing to admit, but uh, <laughs> I've always liked them. So I, I know there are many writers who my idea of a literary community makes them feel physically sick, like seeing writers every week, talking to them, drinking with them. But I think of them as um, my, my people, you know. Do you feel like there's a difference in the way that sort of community of writing works in Britain versus America? What you you yes. you choose to live here now mostly. Mostly, mostly I choose. I mean, my children have you know made it inevitable by getting older and attending <laughs> school. Um, but yeah, I do basically choose to be here. And and the main, I it's, it's slightly flippant, but but it it creates a big difference. The biggest difference to me about New York compared to living in London, is the absence of the kind of um, uh, domestic necessity. No one ever cooks me a meal in New York. That's a good thing. There are no dinner parties, or very few. Um, and so to me, like kind of literary connection with other writers, it can be so much more fluid and quick and uh, unencumbered, you know? It just involves going to a corner bar and getting drunk. Once a week, it's very easy. Um, <laughs> And it's t in England, to me, it was always a very uh, 
a very class-ridden thing. It was about people's houses and what kind of dinner you cooked and whether you knew about Ottolenghi. I can't do any of these things. I'm not a, I'm not a person who can do those things. So this, this suits me more, the idea of um, a loose community that's there for each other, but is also aware that we're, we've all got work to do, you know. And what drew you to, to be here in the first place and what made you stay? I, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't our accents. No. Um, <laughs> I, th I think it came from a long, long way back. I was talking to my daughter. We were watching the first episode of uh, Fame, you know, the old show. Um, and I saw that when I was about 10, and uh, it kind of formed a complete fantasy life for me about New York. I, I really thought I was going to arrive as people in leg warmers dancing down the street. <laughs> I, was, I was very, that whole broad, I wanted to sing and dance, you know, and so that, it was always a kind of ideal place in my mind. And then when I came here, first I think I came with McSweeney's, like on a tour with Dave Eggers and all that crowd, but everybody was very young. And it, it, it just, um, it was just exciting to me. I, re I remember landing in New York and getting a phone call from Paul Beatty, I think, like in the cab. I was like, this is a very different scenario, you know, where writers are young and they talk to each other and you don't feel completely oppressed by the two or three generations above you. It just felt full of possibility to me, yeah. And do you feel like, um, I mean, you, you've drawn so heavily on this neighborhood creatively and um, on the neighborhood where you grew up and this right. kind of community you're so intertwined with. Does it feel, how does it feel to be at a distance from that and also to write about it from a distance? I don't, I mean, I'm, uh, I do think of myself as someone who's completely, I don't know, deracinated basically inauthentic at this point. I don't, I don't have anywhere solid to be. I, I try and make a virtue of that experience. Like I miss home terribly, but home has moved on. There's so many things I don't understand about England now, and especially don't understand about street culture or the kind of communities I came from. The distance is so huge. And when I was writing this book, I was thinking about my present neighborhood, Greenwich Village, which no offense to any Greenwich villagers, but you know, it's slightly an absurd place, you know, it's not, it's not a, it's, it's kind of artificial, it's almost like a movie set at this point, but it became interesting to me exactly that kind of um, inauthenticity, you know, the, the fact is people's life still does happen between the cracks, you can still go to Washington Square and, and feel something, feel a real pulse of human life despite all the reasons you shouldn't, and so I ended up wanting to write about that. It is about, I guess, gentrification, about life continuing through the gaps of gentrification, about how gentrification happens. All those things were in my mind when I was writing, yeah. Do you feel like your, your um, distance from, you know, American culture, at least as you were growing up, how, you know, we're somewhat obsessed here, obviously, with our political situation. Yeah, yeah. Do you, how do, do you feel a, a distance from that, and, and is that a good thing, or how does it affect you? No, I don't. I think I did used to feel a distance from it, but not, not anymore. N now it's uh, foremost in my consciousness. You know, I was, I was reading that book, The Politics of Pain, the Fintan O'Toole book about Brexit, which is a stunningly brilliant book, but I realized I was reading it almost as a foreigner, as, as news, you know? It's, it's what happens here which um, obsesses me now, yeah. 
And much has been said about the sort of parallelism between the two situations. As someone who knows both countries well, do you, do you feel that or do you feel that they're very different situations? I, I think they are, are different, actually. The, what Finton does such a good job of explaining is, is that the English version is, is really based on um, a, a profoundly false narrative. That's true in America, too, but I think in America there's more consciousness of the falsity of American narratives, whereas in England um, the, the self-deception goes very, very deep. And I, I think what strikes me in England is, you know, when people talk about revisionist history in England. It, it, to me, it's not a matter of revising the history. It's actually describing the history, the actual history. What was given to us was revisionist in the first place. There's been no reckoning with British colonialism, certainly no reckoning with British slavery, and no real reckoning with Britain itself. Um, and the kind of false stories we tell ourselves, which are almost entirely bound up with the Second World War, which we won. I don't know if you heard about that, but we won. <laughs> Um, that, that has distorted our political process for such a long time. Um, and I do feel, I know things feel incredibly uh, bleak here right now, but I've always felt in America that the, the counter voices and the counter narratives and, and the obsession with historical truth here on a part of a large proportion of the community is very striking. It's always a battle because the pushback is so hard, but, but from a British perspective, the fact that it's spoken aloud, written about, taken seriously, um, is important to me. That's so interesting, because I feel like one of the things we're so worried about right now, or I'm sure many people in this room, and I know I am, is this, this kind of relativity of truth. And the result, you have a line in your story downtown from Grand Union, um, which goes, like everyone else in America these days, I stand by my truth. <laughs> yeah. And you know, there's, there's obviously the, the, the phrase fake news has come to be something that is thrown at uh, uncomfortable truths, let's right. say. So it's interesting to, to hear you kind of s describing us as actually somehow more um, rigorous about being honest about the past um, than, than it seems is often the case in Britain. I, I'm just curious about that. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm speaking from my, the history that concerned me when I was a kid, which is basically the history of the diaspora, and the amount of, um, you can't even talk about it as uh, lies, more like silence. It was really, um, you could go through an entire British education without learning anything about Britain's relation to slavery, apart from that they ended it. That's the one fact you learn. <laughs> um, and that kind of um, aporia is, is so, it's so dangerous. Particularly to the formation of people, so it would have been very helpful for people of my generation, second generation Caribbeans, to understand why their families were structured the way they were structured, why economically we were in the position we were in, what our relation was to this supposed mother country. All of those things are not just, you know, flat, boring history books. They're self-making. You know, to understand these histories is to understand something about your positioning. And I. I do feel that a lot more of that history is uncovered in America. It, it's always in the battle of being uh, resuppressed, ignored, uh, spun as lies, or, but, it, but it exists, and there is serious scholarship. And so for British perspective, it feels, uh, it always felt to me that diaspora history had, uh, was at least understood to be central to American history, to put it that way. 
That makes sense. Um, so I'm going to switch gears for a minute and talk about reading. You wrote an essay um, a few years ago that made me laugh so hard in which you marveled at the fact that you were leaving to go to a dinner party and had placed in your book six or seven, I mean, I'm sorry, had placed in your purse six or seven books. Right. And you were asking yourself, what on earth do I think I'm going to do with these? I'm going to a dinner party. Well, now we know how you feel about dinner parties, so <laughs> it makes a little more sense. But I wanted to talk, and you, you're obviously a voracious reader. I'd love to hear about how you structure your reading. How do you approach it? And, you know, when, where, and what? Um, I mean, I came in the cab here. I've got like three books in my bag now. Well, if, if, yeah, you know, if, I, if I start to, if we, um, if we run out of steam here, you can, you can read a little. <laughs> um, I, I, I just, the, the, the torture for me, I'm sure it's the same for you, is how much balance to put on writing and reading. I definitely read more than I write just because I enjoy it more and it's, it's more nutritious to me and it, it's what I like to do. Whereas writing is, is what I do, but usually under some, you know, under the cosh a little bit. And, and, and it's painful. Writing is painful all of the time. Whereas reading a great novel is, for me, is just pure pleasure. There's no downside to that activity. And also, I suppose I've always thought of it as, um, you know, school. I never stop being uh, student-like in my mentality. So I've, I read slightly selfishly for what I can... Um, from, for what I can get. I, I read young writers to steal stuff that they <laughs> do. Uh, I, I read uh, like non-English language books to, to be less parochial or to get out of this kind of moment. I, I read with some urgency. I, I don't like to be bullied in my reading, like you know, top 10 lists and all that kind of stuff. Um, but certainly whenever I'm out with friends, the first question I always have is, what are you reading? It seems to me like a, a superpower reading, like it's just an extraordinary thing. Like recently a, a friend of mine, fantastic um, Spanish writer, Juan Vasquez, oh, sorry, I got really loud suddenly, uh, gave me this book. It's like a 600-year-old, tiny short book. It's title I'm, of course, going to forget. It's like a pre-runner to um, Don Quixote. It's about a little uh, servant boy uh, being a slave almost, uh, in medieval Spain being dragged from pillar to post by awful people. And as I was reading it, I just felt this feeling I used to have in childhood, like it's a miracle that I can be in this man's head. It's a miracle. It's like, it's beyond time travel. In the writer's consciousness, but in the milieu with the character. To me, the thrill of that is like never stops happening. So I'm, I'm always hungry for it. And I always kind of assume that the reading will result in writing. That's the kind of writing I am, writer I am, yeah. And when you're reading, do you, do you mark things? Do you take notes? How do you respond to, to sentences that really touch you in some way? I, I, will, I will sometimes put a little exclamation mark. <laughs> That's about as far as it goes. I don't, because I'm marking student work a lot of the time. You feel, when you're reading your own stuff, you want to feel liberated from having a pencil in hand. I, I suppose my poor husband, a lot of the time, I just stop, make him listen until he says, I'm also reading a book. Stop doing that. Uh, but there's a lot of that. You want to share desperately a book that's good, you know, with others. Um, 
but I, but I am quite uh, parasitic on them. I know as I'm reading them that I'm building a reading list that's working towards a novel in some way in my mind. Like when I was writing Swing Time, I was reading a lot of uh, West African books, a lot of stuff about the diaspora. I didn't know what it was building to, but I knew that was my concern at that moment and something would come out of it. But if I try and, uh, I don't know about you, but if I tr try and make it uh, like a conscious process and make, structure it, then the whole thing dies. I have to kind of follow my nose. Um, and do you, you, it sounds like you absolutely read while writing. I know there, mm. and you've actually written about this in, in yeah. an essay, that there are those writers who say, cannot, cannot take in anything, I'm, I'm purely expressing. How do, how do you, how does your reading interact with your writing, it, it, you know, as you're doing it? It keeps, you know, it keeps your chin up, I think. It cheers me up. Occasionally, I don't know if you have this, you'll be in the middle of one particular type of novel that you're writing, and a novel comes through the post, because they send us novels, we're so lucky. A novel comes through the post by some radically different writer, and, I mean, that can really, that can really ruin my day. <laughs> <laughs> Why? How? I just immediately assume uh, what I'm doing is wrong. I should be doing that. But I'm already halfway through this, and I have like a crisis of, of confidence, you know. I lose my mind a little bit. So I'm curious to ask you more about that because there's a, um, a piece in Grand Union that certainly feels autobiographical, although I have no idea. Um, that's how many things feel, whether they are or not, called Blocked, which is a kind of rumination about the writing process. And one thing the narrator talks about is self-criticism and the difficulty of, of uh, functioning amidst it. And one thing the narrator discusses, actually, I'm gonna, I even marked this, so I'm gonna just read a teeny bit. Um, sometimes I'm asked, how do you keep from getting depressed, given the state of things, given that it looks like the something you got started is on the brink of collapsing back into nothing? The answer has changed over time. I used to think parallel projects were the solution. Just keep on creating parallel projects and moving between them, and then you never have time to really get down on any one of them. So, of course, I couldn't help but think, hmm, is that really true about Zadie Smith? Well, so it leads me to ask you about process also. Oh, look, I mean, the funny thing about that story, and now I've come to realize it because I keep on people keep on saying this to me, it, it's in the voice of God. So it's meant to be this kind of funny story about creating things. But clearly, like without realizing it, it quite quickly became a Freudian account of making things, generally. But it, it was kind of a, a, a joke, particularly for a friend of mine, Daniel Kelman, who likes, he's a German writer who likes philosophical proofs of God. So it, the story is about all those different versions, the God who has multiple worlds, the God who you know, the Kabbalah god who comes from reducing himself from the world, et cetera, et cetera, all these different gods. Um, but I guess the, the question is the same, right? I was really thinking, would it depress God to look at this situation? How would, how would she or he, like, deal with... I was imagining a creator god who just creates and then hands off, lets you um, run and do your thing. Um, and, of course, as, as literary theory has noticed throughout history, the, the metaphors of god creation and writer creation are similar, right? a world that you make that you don't control, that has some interaction with another life form who then deal with it, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, that there, are, there certainly are personal feelings about making things in there. Um, but I, I don't, I have to, 
I mean, I don't feel like a god who makes things on earth. But I, I was interested in that, in that idea. You think of, of the creator as, as um, without doubt. And it seemed to me obvious that, that if such a being existed, that would be a daily, a daily occurrence. Well, in one of your essays, you talked about, um, and this was talking about your process, about how the first 20 pages of a book are so critical and, and everything sort of hangs in the balance right. because with each word, and this actually speaks to the, the little excerpt that I read, with each word and sentence, you know, possibilities are, are opening and possibilities are also being closed off. So, um, so in a way, it, it, I mean, godlike is, is a little too heavy probably, right. but there is a sense that this is a world that's actually being created right. in a very dynamic fashion. Um, and how, and, and then you just mentioned that sometimes while reading, there can be this kind of loss of faith in whatever the project is. Um, and I, I know that feeling very, very well myself. And actually, the students asked a question about that. You know, what do you do when you just feel like what you're doing is bad? How, how, how does self-criticism enter into your writing life? I think, uh, I mean, that, that like a religious question, why is there something rather than nothing, is also the writer's question every day. Why is there something rather than nothing, and why this something? And with a novel, the something builds to the point of no return. Everyone's had the experience, right? You have this hope of many different novels, or of a platonic novel, or an ideal novel, and very soon it becomes obvious that you're not writing that novel, you're writing the one that's in front of you. I think managing that disappointment, and within reasonable bounds, is what makes a writer. Not imagination, not creativity, not the willpower, and the ability to deal with that disappointment, and, and that gap between idealized thing and reality. A kind of steeliness. You know, I was talking, to, I had a friend, I was talking to a writer yesterday, Sally Rooney, a wonderful writer, and she said exactly that. It, it's, it's, she's very steely, and you need a certain kind of steeliness, almost more than any of the other things, because doubt is, is absolutely the, your daily companion. I just don't know how to write without assuming it's going badly. And, and also, because, it, because it's a matter of subjectivity, the danger is the danger of real human life, which is, are you, are you mad? Are you right? Are you sane? And the thing you're writing communicates, or are, or are you mad? Not in the clinical sense, but in the sense which the communication doesn't happen. The God story is a good example. If nine readers out of 10 have no idea it's God, my subjectivity has, has blinded me to the distance between what I thought I was doing and what is experienced. That, to me, is what happens on every page of every book and trying to keep the balance between self and other in a sane realm, keeping yourself, because you are you and not the other, but communicating with the other, being sure that you communicate. There are novels, and there are novels written when people do actually lose their minds or, or pieces of philosophy where people have lost their mind, where that circle closes and the communication stops. And that's always my nightmare, I suppose. But isn't it also true that the, the culture and our own unconsciousnesses are acting through us as we write, so we really can't control, can't. in the end, what, what is communicated? And I would say, in my own case, I think often the most interesting stuff is the stuff that I only discover is there later, and right. sometimes because other people point it out to me. So but that's I, frightening, right? That's a risk. Like, I've, when I'm teaching writers, I find a lot of younger writers are very resistant to exactly that risk. 
They want to have total control over what they've written and total control of the person who's reading it. And you can't do that. It really is. Uh, no, matter, no matter if you're monitoring them tweet by tweet, the reader is alone in that moment. And you can't reach in and say, actually, I meant this. Actually, I did this. It wasn't this. That's not how writing works. It, it operates without you being present. That's what's kind of magic about it. And yeah, and, and of course, the writer also is quite alone in the process. Yes. So I think about it a lot because my husband is in the theater, which is a very collaborative art form. And even when things are going sort of badly or, or feel really hard, there's this kind of camaraderie and communality that, that buoys everyone's spirits. Right. So to what degree do you involve other people in your process? And how, yeah, how do other voices enter into it, if at all? Um, I mean, I, I have, I have a lot. I need a lot of, um, you know, encouragement, like a small child at all times, through every part of the process. Um, I think it's a strange contradiction in writers' personalities that they believe that they are completely self-sufficient. Is that fair to say? Most novelists that I know, like I was going to Australia recently, and every novelist I told looked at me with such jealousy, not because of Australia, just the flight, the idea of being alone for 24 hours with 4,000 books, no children, is like the fantasy. This is their fantasy. And also things like prison. A lot of writers have the illusion that if they went to prison, it would be wonderful. I've actually thought yeah, that. Yeah, they think that. <laughs> and it's so wrong. It's not true. Because writers are, in fact, incredibly needy, emotionally needy. But they have this delusion that if you put them in a cell, everything would be perfect. They do nothing but write wonderful books. So I'm always aware of that. That division, I also think it would be so great if I was just completely alone, but it's, but it's not the case. I need people. I need personal relationships, I need friends, and I absolutely need uh, editors, uh, unfashionable gatekeepers, and anybody who is not me. I, I need a second opinion all the time. And can you talk just in a little more granular way about the process itself? And this is something the students were interested in earlier. Yeah. Sort of, what, you know, just the nitty gritty of, of how you do it. Um, it. For me, it's all about uh, time because of, because of uh, you know, uh, our lives with children and stuff. So I, I get up and we do the school run. We drop the kids. We try and do something physical. Otherwise, it's just like being a brain in the jar, anything a run or something, and then uh, me and my husband, we often sit in the same study and get as much as possible done between 9 and, well, 10 usually, and 2.30, because you've got to get the kids at 3. So it's a very short window, and um, most practically speaking, the thing I had to give up, I suppose, in order to do that was, uh, like, a lot of internet time. Like, I just can't... If I do that, then I lose two or three hours in what isn't many hours. So I, tr I try and do email at night. I try not to fall down Beyonce Google holes. I try and focus on <laughs> the work in front of me and get, get offline and just focus. And then normally, four hours of concentrated work, would you agree, is more than enough for any... Beyond that, you get this like self-disgust, boredom, or if it's going very well, mania, you start writing nonsense. <laughs> Um, so I, th I think four hours is, is good. And, and then the thing which is, I think, painful when your life is quite full with other things is the, re the reading time, or at least as I remember it when you used to wake up at 10 and read in your bed for hours or do the New York Times. Like, that's all gone. So it becomes very, uh, you know, I, I read at soccer practice at 
picking her up after a singing lesson or whatever it is, I'm always on all calls on buses and trains, always in any travel. I just try and try and squeeze it in. But but when I'm writing itself, I, I don't know, a, a little bit at a time, editing it always. When something's finished, uh, my husband reads it, friends read it. In this case, I, I had a weird thing where I, I bumped into Dave. I guess I don't see very often, but we were in Chicago together, and he said, uh, you know, we're getting middle-aged, and it's hard to tell if you write well anymore. I agreed. Yes, I agree. He said, why don't we swap books? You read mine, I'll read yours. You tell me the truth. Who else is going to tell me the truth? So we did that, and it was really, uh, it was really useful. And that's a good example of, like... There were things, there was versions of this book that he wanted that I kind of agreed with him, but I didn't agree. So you kind of a little battle. So it was this book? It was this book, yeah. Ah. But it was, it was a really good exercise, and particularly like an old friend, you know, someone you've known a long time. It was good. And how much did the feedback he gave you change the book that we now have? He's, you know, he's a brilliant line editor, so there was a lot of that stuff. But I think the main, I hope he doesn't mind me saying, the main thing was... Uh, that there are two different books. I, I could have got rid of all, all the, um, I don't know how to put them, like the older stories or the more traditional stories and just had a book which, uh, for the kids. And Dave loves the kids and was like, just do that book. And I was like, but I, I, like, the, I like everybody. <laughs> so, I, so I ended up with this kind of, it, it's, it, it reflects me, I guess, the, the idea that I always hope, not always successfully, for a reader who, likes as many different types of things as I like. That's just how it is. And, and I, I knew he was right, but I just resisted it as on principle. <laughs> <laughs> um, one, another question that the students asked me earlier that, that sort of speaks to this is, is how I had changed over time as a writer. Mm. And you know, you're still technically a young writer. I think a writer is, is young until the age of 50. <laughs> so okay. enjoy it. Um, but at the same time, because you got started so early, we've all been reading you for a very long time now. Right. How do you feel you've changed as a writer? In terms of your goals, your technique, obviously there are children and, and practicalities yeah. change, but what about the actual, the actual endeavor? I, I think the most powerful thing in writing, the thing I love to read is when you stop um, uh, like applying for love. That's the best way I can put it. Like, I, I do love first novels because they are so needy, you know. It's like, look at me, I'm here. It's all that. Um, and that's great. And, and White Teeth was certainly like that. But uh, I, I, something Ballard said, which really struck in my mind, about, you know, Ballard had a very uh, apparently boring-looking life, right? Three kids, lived in the suburbs, nothing fancy going on. Um, but the books he wrote are so radically free, and wild and terrifying and imaginatively insane. And it, it was his, I mean, obviously he loved his family as well, but one of his arguments, I think, was that when the life is st seemingly stayed, the mind is free. You're not asking for anything from strangers. Like, do you like me? Am I okay? Do you love me? Am I, am I interesting? Am I smart? Am I? You stop, it stops mattering. Whatever those emotional needs are, are supplied by actual humans that you know. And so then the writing can, can really get liberated. Or at least, another way of putting it, I think, is it has a responsibility to be free. Because if, if your life is so quiet, you have a responsibility to be a little 
a little wild in this, in this hypothetical place. So that, that's the thing I noticed most is that I think when I was young, I wanted writing to provide for me, you know, uh, satisfactions, like emotional satisfaction, sucker, uh, revenge. That's a big thing when you're young, revenge on everyone who was mean to you in school or your family or revenge. Um, and Did you actually do that? I think, I don't know a first novel that isn't about revenge. I've never, I've never seen one. It's, Did it work? No, because it, it's not <laughs> to, it doesn't mean to hurt anyone, but it, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's like a reply to some dissatisfaction, you know, some feeling of not being seen. That's what, that's it, right? You weren't seen and now you want to be seen in one way or another. Um, and I, I, I do honestly love first novels for that. They're kind of so exciting. The energy in them is so wild because it's often been bottled up for so long and then it explodes. Um, but I do also like the novels of maturity, you know, where, where a, a whole life is seen in the round. And that's kind of what I aspire to. So, so now when I'm writing, there's just a lot less, um, you know, bells and whistles. I, I just want to write as clearly as I can, yeah. And you, you've thought so much about, and written so much about, very thoughtfully, about what fiction is and what it does. Do you feel that, that what you are trying to do with fiction evolves over time, or has it been fairly steady? I think you should um, be flexible in your desires for fiction. Sometimes you have a particular task in your mind. It's always, these tasks are always, of course, self-generated. Nobody's demanding that you do one thing or another. But like in a book like On Beauty, for me, that was really about I, a certain kind of novel that I had grown up with and loved that just didn't have people who looked like me in it. So it was, it was a very simple project, you know? I, I knew what I wanted to do, and I wanted to provide that book, so the next time some girl like me got into a library, like, oh yeah, there's that book that kind of big family, generative, 19th century style novel. But I, I kind of know these people, I recognize them, they're, they're familiar. So sometimes the, the task is direct and there's a great satisfaction in completing the task. But for me, the task changes each time. It just, it depends on the project, you know. I don't have a, a single thing, I don't think. Apart from perhaps always just wanting to uh, make the argument, hopefully not too didactically, that all people, no matter who they are, feel themselves to be central in their own lives. That, that, that really is, is the thing which concerned me at the beginning and, and the thing I, I still, there's a thread of still now. One thing I love about your work is that it, it, it is, there's so much variety in it and you write about all kinds of people, different ages, different ethnicities, um, different personal histories, all of that. And speaking as someone who never writes about myself, at least not knowingly, or people I know, and actually I do it rather badly, I, I love that, um, that impulse in you and that, and that confidence and that authority. But one thing, I find lately is that it feels like the trend is very much toward, you know, I, I guess what people would call, call autofiction. It's certainly not new. I mean, In Search of Lost Time is, is autofiction. That's what Proust did, and he did it beautifully. Um, but that coupled with a lot of hesitation about cultural appropriation, right. about people's rights to tell each other, to, to tell a story that's apart from his or her own life, has created a sort of trend that I know I feel really apart from. And 
not only that, I feel that if, if this really is what fiction has to be, then I actually can't write fiction. Um, yeah. I mean, and so I'd love to hear you talk about I think okay. a lot of it, like that piece I just read, that could be conceived of as autofiction, right? But it, to say that really assumes too much, as if autofiction isn't entirely rhetorical, entirely fictional, entirely designed. It's, it's not more true than fiction. It's a different form of fiction. There's, there's no more truth in that story than any other, depending on how you define truth. But just because somebody speaks in the first person, I think you have to be a little less innocent as readers in front of the first person. The first person is just a rhetorical device. It's one of many that writers use. It doesn't mean that when they say, I, they're there on the page bleeding in front of you, it's their true soul. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's a rhetorical pose. And I don't, I don't think, I know exactly what you mean, but, but I, th I think it'd be better to remember that that, as you say, it's a very old rhetorical pose, and that there have always been throughout the history of literature, if you wanted to kind of broadly divide it, two slightly different kinds of writers. If you put, compare someone like Genet, for example, to someone like Austin, there are writers who have always been interested in limbing their interior, always. And there have always been social kind of Hegelian novelists who face out. What's happening now is that the internal limners are, are having their day, <laughs> and, but making an, making an ideology of it, which I think is an error, because it, in fact what it is is a sensibility that has run throughout fiction. And one versus the other is not something that interests me as a competitive stance. They're both interesting to me. And you can find throughout literature beautiful examples of the depth of, of both. But there are certainly writers for whom the, the social project, the idea of the kind of, you know, Eliot-style span of people is just of no interest. They are interested in living themselves. A lot of the time it's in, you know, we think of it as a poet's habit, you know. If you compare, like, Langston Hughes to Zora Neale Hurston, for example, internal to external. But to see it in fiction, I, I love to read those books. I just, I just revolt at the idea that that they represent some kind of like Fukuyama-like end of fiction, or it's all nonsense. As, a, as an aesthetic ideology, it's, it's so dumb, it's not even worth arguing about, because it doesn't make any sense. So I, I try not to engage with it at that level. Um, but uh, the interest in other people, uh, I, I always uh, take it as a, a culpability. I say, absolutely, uh, this is a, a tick, I, this is a voyeuristic habit of mine, compulsive interest, in people who aren't me. I, I absolutely um, admit to that. Do you eavesdrop? All the time, yes, with great fascination. <laughs> um, because you are absolutely trapped in your, in your subjectivity, physically, biologically, you are, you are here in this body. Any opportunity of escape, which is what the arts provide, um, is fascinating to me. There also, of course, as I was trying to write about in the essay, degrees of escape, escapism which is uh, immoral, dishonest, uh, fantastical, or, or just uh, self-calming, creating imaginary others to bolster yourself. Um, that's always happened too. Stereotypes, bad versions, that, that, that's always existed. But the other kind has always existed too, this kind of uh, fascination, animating force with another voice. So I, I think, uh, for me, the argument is a little bit um, overstated in both cases, honestly. I think both can survive happily in a literary ecosystem of health. 
And even in a memoir, there are so many choices made and right. other people who have experienced you know, similar you know, witnesses to those events might say that's not at all what happened. Right. I mean, it's, it's obviously all very subjective. It's so subjective. I mean, you go back to Thanksgiving dinner and try and make any account of your family history together. It's dead in two minutes. And your brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts aren't lying. They just have literally lived in an entirely different reality from you. As is true of all of us, no matter how close we think we are, as communities, as racial groups, as families, your reality inside is inviolable. It feels so different on the inside. And fiction is just a little, in no way definitive, imaginative access to that fact. You, I'm curious about your relationship to technology. You've uh, somewhat famously uh, expressed your lack of interest in social media and that sort of thing. And obviously, there's a time element that is, I'm guessing, part of that. But it seems like it goes deeper than that. What, what is your, and yet there is technology in Grand Union because of course people right. are involved in, in all of these, um, in social media and image making, um, it's a big part of contemporary life. Yeah. I mean, I would no way describe it as a lack of interest. Like, I, I wouldn't say I have a lack of interest in heroin. I just don't think <laughs> it would be a good idea for me. <laughs> That's the way I would put it. <laughs> Um, because it's addictive or for yeah, other but reasons? It, to, for me, I don't know about the rest of you, but for me, that would be a fundamentally addictive thing. Uh, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be able to do my work. I just wouldn't be able to. So it, it's an entirely practical concern. But what about, and I, I share that feeling, by the way, um, and, or actually I would say even as someone who kind of uses it, I don't really feel the fascination that I think, and it may be a generational thing that, that some do, but... Um, but what about its impact on inner life and its, its kind of perme permeating of the culture? That, as a writer, must be something that you do think about since you're, you know, you're capturing human experience at this moment in time. How do you Yeah, I mean, there is that? a good uh, argument that all these, what must seem like grumpy uh, Luddite novelists going on about social media are... are are in a way just jealous, right? Because our job is uh, behaviorism, that's our job. And suddenly we're up against the largest collector of data and behavioral information the world has ever known. And not only do they know everything, they have total control of it, they're able to manipulate you in ways I couldn't even dream of, though I'd like to. So it might, it might be a vocational um, jealousy. Um, but uh, to be more serious, uh, I mean, I, I don't, want to go on an endless rant, but, but it, it does seem really important to me, uh, not for our generation, but for, for young people to at least, they might, they might know all of this already, but they might want to familiarize themselves with who and what they are interacting with. Because the illusion that you are interacting with each other only, that, that is an illusion. And, and that's not, you know, conspiratorial thought or Luddism. What's actually Luddism is believing that because you move your thumb like this fast, you are a technological genius. You are not. You are not really that different from the kind of mice that moved around B.F. Skinner's behavioral experiments. There's not much difference in what you're doing. If you're programming, cool, let's talk about that. But if you're just using that phone for what, what is now, I believe, for a lot of teenagers, up to six to eight, nine hours a day, uh, I mean, I... You know, it's, it's not for people to sit on stage and preach to you. This information is available to you. You know what you're doing. You know what it's doing to your democracy, your ability to concentrate, your children, your free will. I mean, how many more things do they have to take from you before it's enough? I'm not sure, but it's up to the people to decide.
All right, I'm going to move to some questions from the audience. Um, this is a lovely one. Zadie, where in NYC do you like to go dancing? <laughs> How often do you go out dancing? Thank you. <laughs> I, I, you know, I live downtown, so the opportunities are few. Um, when's the last? I sometimes, I sometimes go. I went dancing with Teju Cole a while ago. That was funny by accident on, on Bleecker Street. I wasn't planned, but he was going somewhere, and I bumped into him but I cannot tell you what that place was. And then we sometimes go to a downstairs, uh, it's in the East Village, it's like a club underneath a restaurant, and I can't tell you what that's called either because I don't remember. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's love, I love to dance. In, in London it's, it seems to me much easier, less expensive, um, more opportunity. Um, but the place I dance most often probably is just in my, in my apartment. We, when we get home from school, we put music on, it's a massive dance off. Um, I, I, I'm, I, you know, I like to, even at this advanced age, my back is going, I like to see if I can do TikTok dances my children bring back from school, or I'm very invested in trying to outdance my small children. Um, all right, well, this, this question follows pretty naturally from that. Michael Jackson has appeared in your work more than once. Mm. In light of that, I, and perhaps all of us, I'm curious to know, what is your favorite Prince album and why? Oh, it's so hard to choose. Uh, oh my God, I, uh, that's really, I, I find that a very tough question. Um, <laughs> oh man, I, I, I mean, I, I went to see him over 20 times. You know, I saw him live so many times. I think maybe it's, it's uh, I quite love the first one. I love Love Sexy, I love Sign of the Times. I mean, I was a teenager when these things came out and they were an, an obsession. And, and actually, even though it's not a popular one, Diamonds and Pearls, I guess I was 14, and I just listened to it over and over and over again, so it has a soft place in my heart. Mm. How do your characters come to you? Do they stick around after you're finished writing? I feel, uh, uh, I feel a fondness for certain people, particularly uh, who seem to me uh, to exist fictionally, like Kiki, um, like Samad, um, like Alex Lee, people who are, not, are really not based on anyone I know, really, but just when I think about them, I think about them as if they were a person I know. I, I think I think of them fondly because to me, they're a success. They, they worked as, as people, yeah. And do they, what realm do they occupy now that you're not writing about them anymore, but you have written about them? Some, I, sometimes, like if, if I'm out with my husband, sometimes we'll see someone or hear someone speaking in it and I'll think, oh, that's a bit like Zora or that, that sounds like Kiki or, you know, it's strange. Or, or uh, Fatu, who's a girl in a small book called The Embassy of Cambodia, uh, after I finished it, like maybe the day after I finished it, I went, walked up the street and I went to a, to a Pret-a-Manger and the girl behind the counter had a little sign that said Fatou. She was obviously West African to my eye and, I, and it was like an out-of-body experience. It's like, oh my God, there she is. Um, <laughs> so things like that, I like it when that happens. 
Yeah. So they're still, they're still around. Yes, yeah, exactly. Certain of your stories reminded me of short fiction by David Foster Wallace. Did David Foster Wallace influence your work at all? Certainly the shape of this book. The thing I really admired about um, Brief Interviews with Hideous Men when I first read it is that every single story is an attempt to uh, reinvent the wheel, every single one. It's, a, it's such an extraordinary collection. It's, the work, it's a work of madness in a way because who would want to sit down and try and find a new way to write a short story 23 times, which I think is what he does in that book. Um, but I just thought it was miraculous. I had never seen anyone uh, work so hard at the form and be so determined to transform it. You know, it, it was a bar that was just set incredibly high. And it, it's not about... Um, some of those stories are expressed very simply, but they just each one had a, came from a completely unexpected place um, and, and they were fearless and, and I, I always remembered that yeah and do you did you dis, did you think as you were reading that book that you've written about um, and for this uh, for the asker of this question there's an essay in I think in changing my mind right. about um, about David Foster Wallace and that book in particular the questioner might want to read it um, but did you as you were reading that work which came out long ago now. 1999, yeah. Um, did you consciously think, I, I want to respond to this in some way? Or does it just kind of seep in and it happens naturally? I, I, it seeps in. I mean, David, like a lot of these writers are writers of, when I, of my youth, you know, and you kind of read them and deal with them. And then you don't, I don't really think about his work anymore. And I don't think about Nabokov anymore. It's just things you pass through. Some things you return to. Like at the moment, I'm like a lot of people, I suppose, rereading Toni Morrison. You come back and you read it completely differently as an adult, not as an 11-year-old or 15-year-old. Um, David, I usually teach, so I'm kind of back in that world very often. But I think when I first read him, it was just uh, it was just the excitement. Like I come from a literary culture, at least in Britain, which is quite it moves slowly, you know. And it's very suspicious of any kind of formal experiment. In, in England, they think that's the business of the French and that you should just... Uh, and they don't mean it as a compliment. Yes, they're, very, they're very serious about what they think of as, as realism and any variation from it is like unspeakable pretension and all the rest of it. Um, so it was just exciting to me to, to know that young people in America didn't think that French theory was nonsense or not to... They were taking it seriously. And that was exciting to me. And the last question is, is really about, um, about interior monologues and about third person. And I'm going to sort of extrapolate from that and say, how do you make craft choices? And you must think about that. You teach writing. So you, you, I'm guessing you talk to students about choices of craft and how they serve the story or don't all the time. How do you make those choices for yourself? Um. I'm going to make a dancing analogy. Like when you are dancing, uh, particularly to, I'd say, black music, in which song after song, the beat completely changes. And if, you, if you're on a dance floor full of people dancing to black music and dancing well, you can see good dancers. The moment the beat changes, everything has to change. The movement changes, the head nod changes, everything. To me, it's like that. Like I don't have any set rules. There are things, it seems clear to me, where I try and get across to some of my students that certain 
forms, like for instance the first person present tense, can be very restrictive. There's a lot of things you can't do. It's like dancing with your hands tied together. Whereas the third person, for me, offers all kinds of possibilities, much more freedom of movement. But it depends. Sometimes, like in that story, the first person voice is just what I need in order to create that false intimacy to make someone feel that they're hearing the truth. For that story, that's what's necessary. For another story, I need to be distant and far away to make a different kind of point or to put characters together in a way in which I'm not, I don't seem to be directly involved. But, it, but it, that quote from Swing Time, when the music changes, so does the dance, that, that for me is the main aesthetic principle. It, I like to think of it as a principle of black culture, but I can't have a proprietorial take on it. But that's how I do, do feel, that there's a kind of adaptation in black culture. Change it up, make it different, cut it up, do something different, do it on the fly, do it fast. Um, and that, that always interests me, that spirit. I think that's a good spot, place to stop. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92Y.org archives.